the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Mercy is not a divine right. None of us is entitled to it. Mercy is God's choice. And even Israel and the Jewish people in their favored status has no favored status in relation to salvation. The cross is for all who would believe. No special status for anybody. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. So Paul's like, please don't take this personally, Jewish people. He says, I, I'm a Jew just like you. In today's message, Pastor Gary will share with you about mercy. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jonah was told to go to Nineveh to deliver a message from God. But Jonah didn't want to go, so he ran from God. Eventually, Jonah delivered a message of mercy to the pagan people of Nineveh. But Jonah was angry. Why should God forgive these horrible people? Sometimes we get the same feelings, but God offers mercy to all people who will accept it. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans chapter 9 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. In your Bible, if you want to do this, this is what I did in my Bible. I, I took a pencil and I crossed out the word sovereign. And I wrote the word mercy, the mercy of God, the mercy, God's merciful choice. I wrote the word merciful, God's merciful choice. Here's why I did it. This whole ninth chapter, there's a lot of people who read this in terms of the sovereignty of God. Okay, And by that, they mean that, that God's you know, there, no doubt about it, there's God's sovereignty and there's man's responsibility. But when we solely emphasize the sovereignty of God, again, we're going to go down this fatalistic path that God just controls all things and that there's no real room for man's responsibility. Now, the reason I'm encouraging you to put a little line through the word sovereign and replace it with the word merciful is because, check this out, the word sovereign does not appear a single time in the book of Romans, not once. But yet people would use this ninth chapter to make this sovereign argument, okay? You know the word that appears? Mercy. Ten times through the book of Romans, the word mercy appears seven of those times in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's a very concentrated section here in the book of Romans having to do with mercy. So while we will see, and I may even use the word sovereign in the course of teaching through this chapter, the emphasis is not on 
the sovereignty of God, the emphasis here is on the mercy of God. And if you don't see that, you're going to miss the whole emphasis that Paul is trying to communicate. So I personally think whoever came up with the subtitles has done a disservice to the ninth chapter because it is taking our view of God and it is narrowing it down to this fatalistic sovereign God. And he is sovereign. There's no question about it. But it narrows the view to a fatalistic view of God rather than a merciful view of God. And so a lot of times people look at the ninth chapter in terms of what God orchestrated and what God predetermined, instead of looking at it as how God opened wide his mercy to people who would not normally have been the chosen people. And I don't mean that in terms of the Jews. He's going to get specific here. He's going to talk about Isaac and Ishmael. He's going to talk about Jacob and Esau. And he's even going to talk about Pharaoh as a demonstration of his mercy in the big picture of things. But first, he's going to deal here a little bit with the Jewish people, and then all of chapter 9, 10, 11 have to do a lot with the Jewish people. But notice where, where he begins here in verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, speaking about the Jews, those of my own race, the people of Israel. All right, now hear his heart here, right from the beginning. Because some people will accuse Paul of basically saying, when you start preaching this message of mercy and grace, and anybody can believe in Jesus, that you're, you're dissing the Israel people. And you are a Jew yourself, Paul. You know, if you, if you take away the privileged status of the nation of Israel in deference to this whole message of mercy and grace, then you, you're dissing your own people. This isn't right. I, I remember one of our trips to Israel, and I take those of you who've been with me. We go. In fact, this last trip, we didn't have time to go to this to this uh, shop, but we go to uh, Shorashim. It's the shop in the old city of Jerusalem, and there's these two twin guys, these men who are Orthodox Jews who own and run the store. And I've developed a relationship with them over the last twenty years, and we're good friends. But uh, Moshe and Dove are their names, and and a lot of times I take groups in there, and I and I I want Moshe to share the Jew. Jewish perspective. He's very well versed in both Old and New Testament. And so it's great dialogue. It's no debate. We just, you know, have a great exchange and he shares the Jewish perspective to things. And one time I pulled Moisha off to the side and I said, I said, um, you know, tell me tr- your true feelings about Jesus. Okay. And this is what he said to me. He said, I don't have a problem with Jesus. He said, my problem is Paul. He says, because Paul betrayed his own people. Paul betrayed the Jewish people. Now, this is the kind of thing that that Paul's anticipating right here. Because he's saying he realizes that if he's preaching the message of the cross and mercy and anybody can come to faith and trust Jesus, have your sins forgiven, then what happens to the privileged status of Israel? Because the truth is, as far as salvation is concerned, there is no privileged status for the nation of Israel. Now hear me on this. God's not done with the Jewish people. God still loves the Jewish people. He who who touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. Okay, there's a lot of verses here. God's not done with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. Hear me on all this. But in terms of salvation, Israel does not have a favored status. And so Paul wants to begin this ninth chapter by saying, you know what? If it were possible, I'd rather be cursed and go to hell if that were somehow the way that my own people could be saved. I would take the penalty for them if I could. That's what he's saying there. 
He said in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He says, oh, how much I want that. He says, hear my love for my own people. I'm, I'm not, I'm not condemning my own people. I'm not, I'm not trying to come against my own Jewish race. He says, no, God forbid. If I could somehow take their penalty, I'd do it in a minute. And then he goes on here in the next couple of verses, verse four, he says, theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Okay? He says the people of Israel, they're a special people. And they've been in a special place where they have received everything from adoption to divine glory, the very Shekinah glory of God that was with Israel, the covenants, receiving the law of Moses, the temple of God, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've received all these things. But he says, and all of us need to hear me on this because this is what he's saying to all of us. Mercy is not a divine right. None of us is entitled to it. Mercy is God's choice. And even Israel and the Jewish people in their favored status has no favored status in relation to salvation. The cross is for all who would believe. No special status for anybody. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. So Paul's like, please don't take this personally, Jewish people. He says, I, I'm a Jew just like you. But he said, we all need to understand. We've been handed so much the privilege and the blessing. He says, even down to the point where through the Jewish people has come who? Trace the human ancestry of Christ. Notice, who is God over all forever praised. That's the way verse 5 ends, which is a very strong statement about the divinity of Jesus, isn't it? He says, Jesus is God. He says, through the Jewish line came the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Okay, next time you get a knock on the door from Jehovah's Witnesses and they want to tell you that Jesus is just the Archangel Michael, just take him right here to this verse. Say, I don't think so. Because my Bible says that the human ancestry, Jesus Christ, came through the Jewish people and Jesus Christ, who is God over all and forever praised. Amen. So for those of you taking notes, he's going to go down a list of what salvation is, and it's actually in the negative, what salvation is not. And so I've enumerated these in the, in the negative because he says there in verse three, salvation is not something we can achieve for someone else. That's so he says, if, if I could, I would give my salvation to the Jewish people whom I love and who I am, and I would take the curse in their place. But you, you, nobody can do that. Okay. He, I mean, he's just, he's just saying it, you know, metaphorically. I wish, I wish this could happen, but it just can't. It, it's not, it's not possible for me to trade salvation in some way. You can't achieve salvation for anybody else. Everybody has to come to this in their own personal decision. And then he says, verse six, it is not as though God's word had failed for not. In other words, well, there, if a lot of Jewish people don't believe in Christ as Messiah, maybe God's word has failed. He's like, no, it's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, this gets a little confusing here, but let, let's take it slowly while we hear the rain uh, dancing on the roof. Verse 7, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Okay, so back up here, verse 6. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Remember that Israel became the new name 
for Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yaakov in Hebrew means deceiver. And when Jacob was born, he lived out his life as a deceiver. So he was born named Yaakov. But then he wrestled with God. Remember that scene in Genesis? He wrestles with God. And then he surrenders and submits to God. And then God names him Israel. Your name shall be Israel, meaning governed by God. So what Paul is saying here is not everybody who is just a descendant of Jacob is a part of Israel, nationally speaking, okay? Because there's a difference between nationally belonging to Israel and spiritually belonging to the promises of God. There's a difference. It's kind of like saying not everybody who's a, and this is a true statement, listen to me on this, not everybody who's a Christian is a Christ follower. A lot of people have that title, I'm a Christian. And to some people, it just simply means I'm not Jewish or Muslim. That's what it means. Say, what are you? I'm a Christian. Do you love the Lord? Nah. Do you go to church? No. Nah. you have a relationship with Jesus? No. Nah. I'm a Christian. Not everybody who's a Christian is a Christ follower. Not everyone who is of, is of Israel is of Israel. And so then he says it in verse 8, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Remember, Abraham in his old age couldn't have children with his wife Sarah. And God promised, though, that Abraham and Sarah would have children. They got a little impatient. And Sarah came up with another idea. said, I can't have kids. You're not getting any younger. I'm no spring chicken. So how about you sleep with my maidservant Hagar? And Abraham, without hesitation, was like, okay. It was a bad name to all us, man. <laughs> okay, well, you should have just waited for God, Abe. But instead, he just already, so he sleeps with Hagar. Ishmael is born. Was that the child of the promise? No. There's a lot of the seed of Abraham that came about that were not a part of the promise. Isaac was the promise. So the next argument he makes here is salvation is not something we can gain by birth. He's again, you know, he's, he's like, you don't have favored status just because you are a Jew and salvation itself does not come because somehow we gain it by birth. He makes the distinction there between natural children, there in verse 8, and children of the promise. He says in verse 9, For this was how the promise was stated, At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's Isaac. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, the twins were Jacob and Esau, remember? Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow, well, there's a lot right there. So let's just first of all look at point number three, and then I'll come back. Salvation is not something we can earn by works. That's what he says there in verse 4. Uh, he said, in order that God's uh, purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. So we have these two examples here. We have Ishmael and Isaac. We have Jacob and Esau. The similarity between the two are a couple. First of all, Ishmael was the oldest. Typically, the oldest child was the favored child. But Isaac was really the child of the promise. In the same way, Jacob and Esau, Esau was the older of the twins. Esau typically would, would have been the favored child in that culture. But Jacob was God's promise. Jacob was God's choice. 
The other thing that these two had in common was that Ishmael is a picture of the flesh. How, was, how did the birth of Ishmael come about? It's because Abraham decided that Sarah's advice was good, and so he slept with Hagar. It was a, whole, it was a fleshly response to what God wanted to do. They tried to hasten and help God along. Okay, sure, nothing anybody else has ever tried to do in your life, try to help God along. But that's what they did. It's a fleshly thing. Ishmael is a picture of the flesh. In the same way, with the story of Jacob and Esau, remember Esau was a man of the fields. Jacob was a man of the home. He was a homeboy. And, you know, Esau was a hunter, and, and he was gruff and rough and, and, and had, was so hairy, he, you know, he looked like a goat boy. And, and Jacob, Jacob liked Michael Buble and sweaters tied around his neck. And that's just the way he was. It's okay. It's all right. Just different. And so Jacob was at home, and he was a mama's boy, and Esau was a daddy's boy. But Esau was the oldest, and guess what? He's out in the fields hunting one day. Jacob's home making stew with mom. Nothing wrong with that. But... Because he likes the cooking channel. But then what happens is Esau comes home and he's famished. And Esau says to Jacob, how about you give me some of that stew? And Jacob, still living true to his name because he's not really wrestled with God yet, is a deceiver. And Jacob says, well, how about you sell me your birthright and I'll give you a bowl of stew. Now, the birthright was actually a legal document. The birthright was given to the oldest son. And it meant that you would receive twice the inheritance of any other child in the family when dad died, and that you would resume and take over as the patriarch of the family when dad died as well. You had special status in the family. And Esau, for a bowl of stew, the Bible says, sold his birthright to Jacob. It was also an act of the flesh. In a moment of weakness, his physical appetite took over his spiritual life, and so he's a picture of the flesh. So in this story here, the comparisons, Paul's saying, listen, in both of these stories, both of these brothers, you have a fleshly man and you have a spiritual man. You have a fleshly man, you have a spiritual man. But they're not still even the best examples. Jacob is not this model of spiritual maturity. He's a guy who wrestled with deception and manipulation all his life. He was a man in long process to get to a place of full surrender. It took him a lifetime, but it was God's mercy where he decided, irrespective of the firstborn status, you know who gets to come? I'm going to choose the younger. And they are going to be the promise because I can choose to be merciful to people who may not otherwise necessarily be entitled to mercy, because mercy is not a divine right. It is not an entitlement. It's the choice of God. So, verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? In other words, is, is God unfair? He says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's what? Mercy. And it's a takeaway point from all of this so far. Salvation is an act of God's mercy met by our faith. Now, we're not going to get through the whole chapter, and I actually want to come back next week and talk about the hate-love thing about Jacob and Esau, so I'm going to make a note. But I do want you to go to Matthew 20, and then we're, and we'll close with this parable, because Matthew chapter 20, if you'll turn back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, not a very long parable, but I want to read this, because we need to understand God's mercy in, in its truest biblical, very healthy perspective of what mercy is. And again, sometimes we can get wrapped around the axle, and we think, well, God, God chose 
Isaac and, and not Ishmael, and God chose Jacob and not Isaac. It doesn't sound fair. Okay, and we can stumble over this whole fairness thing. What we need to do is we need to understand God is merciful, and he, he can have mercy on whoever he wants. And so in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus teaches this parable. Look at it. He says, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Okay? Now, it's early in the morning. This is 6 a.m. We don't know for sure, but it's probably the break of day. Verse 3, about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour, that's 12 noon, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and did the same thing. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now see, they're doing this on purpose so that everybody can see the last the workers hired last are going to get paid in front of everybody else. Verse 9, the workers who were hired about the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m., came and and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who, who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am what? Generous. So the last will be first and the first will be last. All right, your attention, please. We'll summarize this. So there's this foreman who drops on down to 7-Eleven. He sees a bunch of guys standing around who want work. And so he hires them. He goes at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. He says, hey, how many of you hermanos, you want to work? And they're like, yes, we want to work. I said, great. All right, you come. You work. Okay? And he promised the first group at 6 a.m. I'll give you a denarius. That's a, that's a good, honest day's wage. And every single group that he hired at different times of the day, including the last group at 5 p.m., when it's time for pay at the end of the day, he gives even the last group a denarius, just like he promised the first group that he hired at 6 a.m. And the group at 6 a.m., they bark out. They're like, this isn't fair. You gave them a denarius. You hired them at 5 p.m. We've been working since 6 a.m. What's the, what's the wrong? This is not fair. This is not fair. And the landowner says, what is it to you if I want to be generous? You got exactly what you were promised. I'm fair to you. I hired you at 6 a.m., said I'll give you a denarius. Have I not given you a denarius? Yes, I've given it. All right, fine. I've given you exactly what I told you I would give you. I am fair to you. What is it to you if I want to be generous to someone else? See, because that's what mercy is. And that parable is a picture of our father. For those of you who say it's not fair, hear me on this. Mercy is never fair. Okay? If God were fair, we'd all be going to hell. I think God gave me an exclamation mark on that. 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you better thank God that mercy is not fair because God is generous to give us what we don't deserve. That's his mercy. And God can choose to be merciful to whomever he jolly well wants. And I, for one, am thankful for his mercy. Amen? We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we dig into the book of Romans. Isn't Paul's faith inspiring? Did you know you can download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you wherever you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word right at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you in person, too, at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Stop in for a service this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m., or join us for our Bible study and fellowship on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pastor Gary would love to shake your hand and answer any questions you may have about the study about Cornerstone Chapel, or about how you can have a relationship with God. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can listen to additional teachings from this study or read accompanying resources on our site as well. Just look under the Teachings tab. That's all we have for today, but join us next time to learn more from the Book of Romans right here on Cornerstone Connection. Got no place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.